I'm Nala Ayed, host of Ideas. In this age of clickbait and online shouting, Ideas is a meeting ground for people who want to deepen their understanding of the world. Join me as we crack open a concept to see how it plays out over place and time and how it matters today. From the rise of authoritarianism to the history of cult movies, no idea is off limits. Ideas is on the CBC Listen app or wherever you find your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Nora Young. This is Spark. You know, I'm not the handiest person in the world, but I do like to fix my stuff if I can. In my case, that's mostly because I'm cheap, but the desire to tinker and mend and fix is a pretty basic human trait. Too bad repairing things is getting harder and harder for us to do. So today on Spark, a look at the right to repair movement, fixing your stuff in a digital age. It's 1998 and your toaster is busted. Poke around, but you can't figure out what the problem is. But there's no need to throw it out and buy a new one. You can take it to the appliance repair shop. Yeah, your Frazenkratz coils are messed up all right. I think I've got some extra parts in the back. Your toaster's fixed. You go home and plug it in. Awesome. Those were simpler times. And these times, the ones we're in now, not so much, since most of our devices are electronic. They're not as easy to just repair or noodle around with as mechanical devices were. And increasingly, they rely on software. And sometimes you can't repair them even if you know how, because you're just not allowed to. And that's what's fueled the right to repair movement. The right to repair is the consumer's ability to repair faulty goods, and that's either themselves or to take it to their preferred shop, whether that's an authorized shop like a John Deere licensed dealership or their favorite independent repair shop at a fair competitive price. This is Natasha Tuzikoff. I'm an associate professor at York University, and I look at the regulation of technology. She's also the co-author of the book, The New Knowledge, Information, Data, and the Remaking of Global Power. Her research focuses on data governance in an age of smart technology. The fight to broaden our ability to fix consumer and industrial goods has been growing across the globe. Here in Canada, a 2019 public opinion survey showed that 75% of Canadians would support legislation on the right to repair. In the new knowledge, Natasha argues that control over digital data has become an important battleground, politically and economically. And data control by companies is linked to the right to repair. So what are the benefits of repair as a right? There's social benefits. People express their creativity, their innovation by taking something apart, tinkering with it, putting it back together. There's economic benefits. We have small and medium repair shops across the country. Canada is a big country with a lot of rural and remote areas, and people want to be able to support their local businesses. There's also big environmental benefits because this idea of designed in obsolescence and throwing away things when the new product comes out contributes to landfills and e-waste, especially in developing countries. And finally, there's big financial benefits. So this is for small and medium enterprises, but it's also for consumers who want to buy refurbished goods or secondhand goods or just be able to support their local repair shops. So how much of this then is about, you know, me as a hobbyist who wants to take apart my computer versus helping more independent repair shops to flourish? 
It really is more about the independent repair shops. Definitely the right to repair would encompass the at-home person who has the skills and interest in doing that. But this is really about someone uh, who has a broken you know, fridge or vehicle or tractor being able to look in their community and say, I will take it to that person. And that person has the, the right equipment and the right equipment from the manufacturer, the software, the tools, the uh, uh, replacement goods to be able to fix it properly. Yeah. And I think a lot of us just as consumers can relate to that feeling of frustration of being told, well, you know, you should just get rid of it and get another one, right? As opposed to having it fixed. So Absolutely. Th- this idea of control over knowledge is something that you explore in your recent book, The New Knowledge. So how do you see this control kind of exerted in our relationship with our day-to-day technologies? Well, it's all about control over the software. So the goods we're talking about are all the goods that have software or in some cases, really complex software systems embedded in them. So your vehicle, your fridge, your toaster, your fitness wearable, all of these things have software systems. And what happens is in the attempt to diagnose the problem, you have to tap into the software and be able to fix it. And this can be just a a simple thing like a compressor in a fridge, but in the accessing the software, you may be violating the copyright. And this is what, where we get into the idea of control. The companies that manufacture these goods and in many cases own the software don't want you to be able to access the software or to to modify it at all. And this is how they encourage or we could say compel you to be able to return to their authorized technicians to have the, the good repaired there. So you mentioned the example of refrigerators. Can you talk about some of the other ways that we're seeing this sort of post-purchase control? So certainly we see this in in, uh, tractors, and this is a a big issue in Canada where uh, farmers, you know, you have a big property, you can't afford to have uh, your vehicle hauled away, you know, four or five hours away in the middle of harvest season. You prefer to go to the person in your town to have this this repaired. But there are problems. There might be a, there's software license agreements, and in that license agreement, it will have a clause that says taking this vehicle or this, you know, this this equipment to uh, a non-authorized dealer voids the warranty. Mm. Now, that might not be legally enforceable, but it's designed to intimidate people, to scare people. And when you're talking about, you know, uh, the vehicle in your driveway, uh, your your security system, your tractor, people don't want to get on the wrong side of the company that supplied this good to them. Yeah. You note the companies that were not in the tech space have in recent years transformed into data and tech companies, thanks to these increasingly sort of software-enabled devices. Can you talk to me about that shift? Sure. John Deere now describes itself as a technology company. So John Deere, better known as a massive agricultural manufacturer, is now a data company. And this is because tractors are fitted with all kinds of sensors. So as that farmer is out driving through the field, those sensors are picking up all kinds of data about moisture and soil temperature and and, uh, the composition of the soil. That data flows wirelessly through those sensors back to John Deere servers. Now, the farmer owns the data, but that means that the farmer has to be really tech savvy and really a a data analytics person to be able to parse that data and figure out what to do with it. So John Deere then sells, you know, aggregated, interpreted versions of that data back to the farmer. So the the farmer is then in a real position of data dependency with John Deere as this data master about what constitutes good farming, when to plant and where and what crops will do best. Right. What do you make of the increasing number of products that are software enabled? 
it can be great. Uh, and, and companies tell us that we want more customizable uh, products. We can control them from afar, remote programmability. And, and that can be really useful. But it also means that this software has to communicate with the service continuously, check for updates, check for instructions. And if you have a data outage like we had with Rogers in, in Canada, this means that your smart locks won't work. You might not be able to get into, into your smart home. So it can be a, a vulnerability too. It also means that the company has to provide continuous updates. And if the company decides, oh, it's not in our business model, we're getting out of the, the smart home business, we're just going to let everything die in your house. So it people might buy something like a fridge, and it might turn out that that fridge, instead of lasting 10 or 15 years like they planned to have a $3,000 fridge, it only lasts six months or it only lasts a year. And I think a lot of consumers aren't really aware of that. Yeah, yeah. Specifically in the case of agriculture, you note that the big tech firms like Google have been kind of eclipsing companies that traditionally dominated that sector. Absolutely. And this is where we, we talk about a datafied economy or a datafied society where those companies that it's their area to amass and parse data. And they've got all the algorithms, they've got the commercial and technological expertise. And so Google is really interested in all things agriculture. It's interested in all things healthcare. And this is where we're seeing these kind of data companies become healthcare companies or agricultural companies, or in the case of the COVID alert apps, you know, uh, alert companies in terms of public health pandemic tracing. So the agriculture companies are becoming technology companies, and the technology companies are becoming agriculture companies. But, yes. But can't you argue that, you know, the software enabling devices actually are useful and do provide data and that you do need experts to analyze the data? You, you do need experts to analyze the data, but I think we haven't had a big social conversation about at what cost, right? And where do the benefits flow? And if you're a farmer who, for generations, this was your traditional knowledge and you kept it maybe in calendars and notebooks and or even, you know, schematics on, uh, and, and blueprints, Excel sheets, this was your knowledge about your land, what did best, and you knew it better than anyone else. And now John Deere has that knowledge. And we're not saying John Deere has a perfect mapping of the world. John Deere has a mapping of what's commercially valuable. So it's the big commercial crops, right? And it's the parts of the world where farming is most commercially valuable. If you're someone who does organic farming with the soft fruits in an area where John Deere cares less about, there's not as much knowledge there. So when we talk about this kind of data-driven society, the benefits certainly aren't spread equally. There's lots of big benefits for companies like Google or John Deere or Samsung, less so for the individual farmer and the individual consumer who are left behind. From the Spark Archives, 2015, Manitoba farmer, Matt Reimer. Didn't seem like a big stretch to me that if we could already control the wheels of our tractors using a GPS signal, that uh, the tractor could drive itself in the field and come alongside the combine without anybody in it. It's all open source hardware and software. So the hardware that's in the tractor that is kind of the brains in there and does the communication between the tractor and the combine that is all right out of uh, the drones with the cameras and the four propellers. It's the autopilot out of there. The software that I'm running on there is completely unmodified. I've, I've hooked it up in a creative way in the tractor to make it work. This tractor is a little bit more modern than I was working on, but I think it's pretty neat to put this whole thing in an old tractor, like from the 80s, that has nothing electronic. Mm. Some of those tractors run forever, and they're good tractors mechanically, but the cabs are obviously degrading, and they're mm. really not that much fun to drive. But if I didn't have to drive it, and it could do a whole bunch of useful work, that would be pretty neat. 
I'm Nora Young, and today we're talking about ownership and control over data and repair. From agricultural and industrial equipment to medical equipment, cars, and the smartphone in your pocket. Right now, my guest is Natasha Tuzikov, a data governance researcher who looks at the regulation of our digital society and economy. In January 2023, farmers in the U.S. won their fight for the right to repair against John Deere, one of the biggest farming equipment manufacturers in the world. It was a, we could say, a significant victory, but it was a voluntary memorandum of understanding. Now, those can be good in that they are national, that they set standards, that they make clear what John Deere will offer farmers. But this was intended, and a key part of this memorandum is that no farming kind of organization will then advocate for a right to repair under legislation. So this is a canny move by John Deere intended to interrupt or circumvent legislation, which might have more teeth because a big problem with voluntary agreements is if you decide not to participate as you promised or to kind of move out of certain areas, there's no enforcement to hold you to that. Yeah. I mean, from what I understand over the past few years, there's been quite a bit of movement happening in this space really around the world. So where does Canada currently stand on the right to repair? Canada's a bit of a laggard behind the United States and the European Union. So a number of U.S. states have moved forward with right to repair bills at the state level. President Biden has uh, issued an executive order supporting right to repair. There's no movement nationally, but there are movement in a number of states. The European Union is moving ahead on a right to repair uh, that, you know, kind of as a directive that would then be codified in law in European Union countries. But Canada is still considering it. Quebec passed a a law about right to repair, but this is, you know, kind of happening on a province by province basis as provinces figure out where they'd like to go. The right to repair in Canada at the national level is moving ahead, we could say baby steps slowly. The federal government announced an intention to have a right to repair 2024 uh, with consultations to be started this summer. I guess the latest I'm aware of, those haven't taken place, at least publicly. There may be movement behind the scenes. And there is a bill in Canada that uh, is currently before the Senate that would allow repairers or individuals who are interested in diagnosing and fixing their equipment to be able to access software. There is, of course, an important limitation. And this is any device that emits music. So I don't know if you have a washer or dryer that sings a little song whenever the cycle Mm -hmm. is finished. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. For those types of devices, you wouldn't be able to do this because that musical interlude would be covered by copyright. Right. Interesting. So the debate around right to repair you know, as we've been talking about, has talked a fair bit about vehicles and farming equipment, but can you talk about just how potentially extensive this might be? So a number of right to repair bills in the United States cover a broad range of consumer goods. So this is everything, of course, all things cell phone, but pretty much every kind of smart good you have in your house from your your toaster, your smart home security system to fridges and and vehicles. So it depends on a state-by-state basis. Some include agricultural equipment or vehicles, some don't. So it's it's a little bit of a hodgepodge effort, but a right to repair in Canada, as advocates have been pushing, would include all of these kind of consumer home devices, would include vehicles, and would include agricultural equipment as well. I mean, I think we naturally think about the IoT of devices that we come into contact just in daily life, like our smart appliances and our wearable technology. But what about smart cities? How does your idea of knowledge control affect cities that use technologies that collect and analyze data? 
This is a really important question because, you know, traditionally when cities did a public-private partnership, they built something like a bridge or energy system, wastewater system. These were all physical goods. And now that they are much more digital, they have software running them, all kinds of sensors, we have to ask the question of who actually owns this infrastructure? And if something goes wrong, who will fix it if we need to repair it? Who will, who will replace that? And in some cases, cities might be partnering with excellent vendors who have reliable reputations and are, are pledging to carry on this infrastructure for decades. But in some cases, we might have fly-by-night vendors that suddenly decide, well, I'm no longer in the energy business. And, you know, Sudbury, you guys are just going to have to figure out how to power the city. So these are questions that city officials who may not understand or appreciate intellectual property and data governance have to start thinking about as long as, you know, alongside regular procurement questions like who will pay and how much and maintenance schedules. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to right to repair, are there things that we can learn from the steps that other countries have taken with regards to that? Yeah, I, I think so. And uh, the United States and the many bills that have, uh, you know, kind of been proposed, uh, many have been defeated, but we, we can look at that language and we can look at all the studies and all of the submissions and really move forward in Canada quite quickly. And I would hope that we really do have a national public consultation. So everyday Canadians can weigh in and say, this is what I want from repair. I want to support my local communities, or I'm really interested in making sure that my power wheelchair, right, when it breaks and it's a, a small repair that needs to be done, I can take it to my local authorized dealer and have that repaired instead of being without a wheelchair for weeks or months, as has happened. So there's lots of you know, good ideas that have been raised in Australia, South Africa, the European Union, and, and the United States that we can learn from. Why do you think it's taken so long to get to this point in the fight in Canada? Like, what makes it such a contentious issue? Industry lobbying. The, there's, there's a lot of money, well-funded. There's, you know, industry people who are, are working on this. And they have some really good scare tactics, right? So Apple has said uh, uh, that, you know, a right to repair may turn a state into a mecca for hackers. And that's, that's not true. This is about people wanting choice in how to repair their goods. And it's about supporting small business. But if you're a big company that has, you know, a, a very powerful uh, lobby group and you've got a very popular product and you want to control an ecosystem, you supply the, 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 the product, you also supply all the replacement parts and the repair, you can see why they would be very reluctant to give that up. It's very financially profitable. Natasha, thanks so much for your insights on this. Thank you so much. Natasha Tuzikov is an associate professor at York University in Toronto and author of The New Knowledge, Information, Data, and the Remaking of Global Power. We reached out to John Deere for comment regarding the Memorandum of Understanding they signed with the American Farm Bureau Federation in January, but they did not respond in time for our deadline. As we heard from Natasha Tuzikov, companies that didn't traditionally occupy the tech space are now collecting and using data from the products they've sold. Devices that combine hardware and software raise questions about the balance between intellectual property and personal property rights. And that's where software, copyright, and the right to repair come together. In short, do the copyright rules that protect a work of art apply to the software in your toaster and what you can do with that toaster? The role of software in kind of playing a gatekeeper role in repair is something that is not known to a lot of people. Unless you have firsthand experience fixing an electronic device, I think that it might seem a bit overly technical or the link might not be terribly clear. 
I think, to be honest with you, a lot of people might not understand that software is protected by copyright. You know, they think of copyright as primarily something to deal with musical works, films, uh, books, and televisions. My name is Anthony Rosbro. I am a doctoral researcher in law at the European University Institute in Florence and a recently appointed assistant professor of law and computer science at Dalhousie University. Anthony's work focuses on intellectual property and copyright in the context of Internet of Things devices. In a recent piece for The Globe and Mail, he argued that the right to repair in Canada should extend to smart technology because of the role software can and does play in preventing or restricting repair. That's at the heart of Bill C-244, which received unanimous approval in the Canadian House of Commons in October 2023. It's now before the Senate for review. It amends the Copyright Act specifically around diagnosis, maintenance, and repair of things. It's kind of a complicated relationship as to how we got here, but starting back in the 2000s, we introduced in copyright law a series of rules around breaking what are called digital locks. And the purpose of these rules was, at the time, to prevent digital piracy. Things like MP3 players, if you remember those things. You know, there were often software protections that prevented folks from pulling MP3 files off the device and sharing it online. And those software protections received then legal protection under the Copyright Act. So the whole purpose of this regime of digital locks was to prevent online piracy. But 10, 15 years down the road, we're starting to see that these same legal protections for software are impeding people's ability to fix things. Because often repairing an electronic device will require access to software in the same way that you would have taken an MP3 player off of a device 20 years ago. So this bill is proposing to allow a new exception that allow people to, to circumvent those digital locks for the purposes of repair. Anthony was recently part of parliamentary debates about Bill C-244. And during those debates, he noticed a common thread that ran through many of the arguments made against a right to repair legislation in Canada. It was really interesting to hear opponents of the bill and the reasons that they felt that it shouldn't go ahead. A common rationale for it was public health and safety. So the idea that if we allow people to circumvent these digital locks, that they may do something unsafe or present risks to others. I think another one was a kind of a cybersecurity rationale. So we, we often heard this saying, well, you know, this could present new threats by essentially having too much transparency in technology. I think what was most interesting was that at least parla parliamentarians seemed to kind of nod along to some of those as if that was the rightful place for copyright law to be regulating in those areas. And for me, I, I felt strongly that it's not. And of course, now we have many devices that are software enabled, Internet of Things devices being an obvious example. So when it comes to that kind of software enabled tech, why is intellectual property such a big part of that conversation around the right to repair? So software, obviously being protected by copyright, that protection alone is often not enough to enforce that right. Because, you know, to assert copyright in software and then to put it on a device or put it on the internet often doesn't prevent someone from copying it or distributing it or modifying it. And so that's where these rules for, for digital locks, um, which is essentially comes down to a type of encryption. That's kind of a, then a technical solution to an otherwise architectural vulnerability, you might say. And so that ends up being very difficult sometimes to circumvent without someone who's very technically inclined to find a workaround and then to share that solution with others. 
So it sounds like you feel that intellectual property and copyright is kind of being used as a bit of a, a hammer to deal with things that are not really intellectual property and copyright issues. Do I have that right? If you think about the purpose of copyright, and, and there's debate really on what that is, but generally most people agree that the purpose of copyright is to incentivize the production of creative, artistic, literary works, and to protect those who do that type of creation. So to protect kind of the means of accessing it, which is what digital locks do, is not really consistent with why we would have copyright protection to begin with, right? So it's kind of a use of an intellectual property right to prevent activities really unrelated to copyright or infringement or reproduction. When you're talking about just accessing software, it's not really a threat to modification or reproduction, you know? So it's kind of um, use for an alternative purpose. <laughs> right. So does that mean that it's a, a bit of a mask in a way for kind of the economic motivations that companies might have for preventing consumers from repairing their devices? Yeah. So it's, I mean, not always the case, but it ends up being a very convenient way of preventing activities that are completely unrelated to like the commercial exploitation of a work. So for example, the firmware on, on your microwave is not software that really has any commercial value. I mean, as far as I'm would know. But the copyright protection in that software then becomes the kind of linchpin for a whole bunch of other legal protections that layer on top of it, which amount to you now being unable to conduct a repair yourself or, or have it repaired by someone else. So your research involves looking at the ways that uh, software and digitization are being used to create new ideas of ownership and access. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? You know, it used to be 20, 30 years ago when you bought a product, even even an electronic one, it was more or less, in IP terms, what we would call exhausted. So the product itself, you, you knew what you bought. It was a toaster that performed certain functions. You owned the device. You owned its functions as well. So the concept of ownership was quite clear at that time. But with computerization and IoT, the internet connection is now like an exponentially even more complicated layer on top of this. It's easier now for manufacturers to kind of fragment what ownership means. So, you know, perhaps you did purchase the hardware to the product, but your use of its software, so in other words, its functionality, is now something that can be carved up by the manufacturer and sold to you in different chunks. So this is an extreme example, but you could take that same example of the of the toaster and suppose that the manufacturer then had the right to sell you whether it could toast it lightly or you know, burn it. <laughs> if those right. were kind of those could be fragmented as features that you were then sold differently, then what you're buying when you buy the actual device is not really all of its functionality. That remains kind of in the hands of the manufacturer. And so there's this kind of like unclear relationship when it comes to who owns the device if you're ultimately relying on on a remote party to to grant you access. Yeah. And does that play into what is so often a bane for people, which is when companies stop supporting a smart device, like through stopping the uh, software updates? Stopping software updates is a big one. There's also feature rollback. So you'll often see a device, you know, this is the case with a lot of computerized treadmills, which are kind of all the rage these days with like a screen on them. And, you know, you'll be sold the device and it will perform all of these features that come with just your purchase of it without any subscription. And then suddenly those features are rolled into a subscription where you have to pay to access them. And so the deal keeps altering. It's kind of a malleable relationship you have with this product that at the time of sale, you know, you thought that it was going to perform these functions which are now being sold to you individually. So yeah. 
From the Spark Archives, 2013. Kyle Weens of iFixit. The biggest trend that we have seen is a trend toward what I like to call design anorexia, where as consumers we want thinner and thinner products at all costs. Mm-hmm. And we don't always realize that the cost can can be either thinner glass, which is less durable, so it's easier to break the glass when you make a thinner product. Uh, it's also a little bit easier to make a product thin if you glue it together rather than using screws or clips that can be easy to, to replace. So right. we're a little bit frustrated with companies in terms of the direction they're going, but we, we also think that the choices that we're making as consumers are also leading manufacturers down a path of thinner and thinner at all costs. Nora Young. Today on Spark, we're talking about the push to include software-enabled goods into legislation for the right to repair in Canada and the legal implications of that. Right now, my guest is Anthony Rossborough, an intellectual property lawyer who explores the tensions between intellectual property and personal property rights when it comes to smart and IoT devices. He says there are many ways that emerging technologies have undermined or obstructed the rights of users. What's often called parts pairing is a big one, so serialization. So all of the parts of the device are paired together with the main board of the device, if you want to think about it that way. Every part of the device is digitally given a, a unique signature that is paired with the operating system of the device. So if any of them are altered or replaced, the device needs to be you know, given a validation from someone approved. Could you give me an example of how that would actually play out? I mean, the two really common examples, and I don't mean to pick on Apple too much, but the iPhone 5S, when the first Touch ID sensor appeared on the device, and this was the first part of the device that was serialized to the the logic board, and perhaps for good reason, for privacy and, and personal information security reasons. But gradually, that technique has now kind of become ubiquitous throughout the device where, you know, the battery, the front-facing camera, you know, more and more of the features are then paired to the logic board of the device so that if any of those are replaced, there will be a feature loss. So sometimes the device will still work, but some aspect of the feature will no longer work. So the screen, for example, will lose its what's called a true tone display. So you'll have a new screen, but it will not look quite as nice because it hasn't been validated. So that's not only Apple, but we've seen this as well with agricultural equipment. You know, John Deere is famous for this, where every part, even, you know, fuel injectors down to very small parts are given a serial number with an encrypted file that the central computer needs to approve if it's ever replaced. Uh, And so, of course, decrypting that file then raises this digital lock question. But yeah, so it's, it's ubiquitous, right? It's not just consumer electronics in our pocket, but it has kind of industrial applications too. Yeah. When it comes to these Internet of Things devices, there's also this question of interoperability, right? Does my Google thermostat work with my Dyson air conditioner or whatever? So how do you see the debates around interoperability and and the relationship of that to right to repair? Yeah, so interoperability, it's a big issue. And I mean, interoperability can mean a lot of different things in different technological contexts. But in this case, when we're talking about devices being able to freely exchange and make use of data, it's another tragedy from digital locks as well. So there's a sister bill before Parliament that is also actually just headed to the Senate, Bill C-294, which is similar to the digital locks bill for repair, but addressing this interoperability question. Now, that has not only a copyright kind of role in terms of software, but there's also bigger questions about competition law and all of that, because when a manufacturer engages in that kind of 
design technique to prevent third party or other manufacturers products or devices from working with them the result is to kind of close off competition as well because then only certain people can produce products and peripherals that work with it it would be kind of like you know if toyota sold a car that you could only use toyota tires with we wouldn't accept that because we've become used to a certain degree of modularity when it comes to cars they're very decentralized but for certain products like agricultural equipment that level of competition just isn't there and so it's an area where the law like increasingly needs to intervene so does that interoperability issue apply not just to our consumer goods, but also like an industrial context? I know you mentioned about agriculture, but does it apply more broadly? Yes, absolutely. And it applies to, so agricultural equipment is is a big one. Mining equipment is another. Medical devices uh, in hospitals is one that is not only, you know, not really a consumer issue anymore and more on the industrial side, but one with significant public health consequences. You know, and we saw, you know, during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, manufacturers using various tactics to kind of put a bottleneck on the repair of medical devices when, you know, hospitals were pushed to the brink. So there are circumstances where we should welcome more of an open competitive landscape for for repair in those cases and interoperability as well. And, you know, there's people who would push back against that and say, well, when you're talking about medical devices, the issue is one where while there are public interest harms in preventing repair, there's also public interest harms in opening repair, right? That maybe someone would carry that out improperly and that would present new risks. And so there's always this push and pull and and it comes down to kind of a philosophy of whether we think we are safer when more people have access to technology or we think we are safer when fewer do. And that's kind of a deeper philosophical question that... uh, I kind of personally ascribe more to that old idea that, you know, many eyeballs make shallow bugs. You know, this idea that the more people who can who can interrogate something, the safer it will be. And, and I think that's kind of a relevant way of thinking about this situation, too. of these uh, Internet of Things visions, you know, it's always a toaster popping up the bread at the right time when we wake up. (laughs) You are listening to Spark on CBC Radio. I'm Nora Young, and right now my guest is Anthony Rossborough, a researcher at the intersection of law and computer science. We're talking about the role of copyright and software in the debate around the right to repair. Earlier, he walked us through a history of our current copyright laws relating to the digital world. Our relationship to that world has evolved a lot since the enactment of measures like the 1998 Digital Millennium Copyright Act in the U.S. or the 2012 Copyright Modernization Act in Canada, which raises the question, is copyright, or at least our interpretation of it, inherently flawed? Or has it become anachronistic in our increasingly digitized world? So copyright in itself, so long as it it goes back to its roots of being about authorship, I think there's a role for it in this new world. But I think the decision to include software under the umbrella of copyright at the time perhaps made some sense, arguably. But I think we're now seeing that it's increasingly kind of an unholy marriage where the implications of this, you know, life of the author plus 70 years in in a computer program that is primarily utilitarian in nature, where it's not really an expression of an author, it's not really a creative work, and how ubiquitous that is in controlling now our physical environment, 
you know, like the real world in which we live is now being dictated by these instructions, which receive this kind of monopolistic protection. I think the social harms are really kind of showing themselves now. And it, and it took us a while to get here just because computing power was, was in its infancy when these decisions were made back in the 80s. Yeah, yeah. Are there any companies kind of leading the way in democratizing repair who, who could serve as sort of examples for others uh, to model themselves after? It's tough because companies, I think, have now a vested interest in positioning themselves in a term that I've called before as repair washing, which is, you know, positioning themselves as kind of, you know, leading the way in this direction. And often that comes down to a type of charity where it's not so much that the manufacturers are giving up or acceding any of their exclusive rights, um, but they're usually offering kind of their own systems or programs to repair or have better access to their products. That's obviously very good, but I think from a public interest standpoint, we should distinguish between charity and a right, you know, and I think we need to kind of ask deeper questions about whether companies ought to have those exclusive rights to prevent public interest activities like repair or modification or experimentation to begin with. Because I think we should go a bit deeper than than to say, this company has has done the right thing here. I think there are examples. You know, I think I think Samsung has done some great things. I think even Apple's self-repair program, as being flawed as it is, is still hugely beneficial towards the right to repair. But I think it would be a bit pessimistic to think that the the systems of exclusivity that that led us here are going to be the ones that get us out of it. I, I I'm a little bit cynical of that idea. How do you see this discussion on the right to repair in Canada evolving over the next kind of months and years? I mean, well, we saw with the fall economic statement just the other day, we see the government saying that the right to repair is also a competition law issue. It's also a reason to look at the Competition Act. I think this is great news for Canada. So I, I think the way we see it evolving is that the federal and provincial governments start to see this is not just a copyright and software issue, as, as important and as dear to my heart as that is. Um, they see it as a broader policy initiative across consumer protection, competition law, and copyright and IP. And for that matter, more than just copyright and IP, when we're talking about trademarks and industrial designs and other types of IP that could restrict repair in, in really meaningful ways. So I think the way we see it evolving is a more broad-based look, a more comprehensive look at all of the different ways in which legislation and policy in Canada can impede repair. And more of a bottom-up view would be you know, inflationary forces that have made life so expensive for Canadians may also provide reason for, for folks to fix things before throwing them away, perhaps. And so I hope to see more of an emphasis, a use of tool libraries and repair cafes and sort of public interest grassroots initiatives that really make repair meaningful to everyday people. And I hope the right to repair involves, evolves in Canada toward more of an emphasis on rural and remote resiliency and sort of self-reliance. And, you know, a lot of rural and remote communities have even more difficult access to repair the inputs for it, whether it's parts, tools, or, or information. And I hope to see the right to repair in Canada take the shape of kind of a part of nation building and part of dealing with those inequities between cities and, and rural remote communities. Anthony, thanks so much for your insights on this. Thanks so much. Anthony Rossborough is an assistant professor of law and computer science at Dalhousie University in Halifax.
I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer vital health questions that will help you thrive, like, what does my mental health have to do with my gut? How can I prevent melanoma? How much sleep do I really need? And how can I manage my health without a family doctor? I chat with the top experts to bring you the latest evidence in plain language, all in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nora Young, this is Spark, and today we're looking at the right to repair. As the tools we use in everyday life, from the toaster on the shelf to the farm equipment in the field, are increasingly complex electronic devices. Devices that manufacturers often control with software agreements and copyright. The right to repair in itself can really only take us so far if consumers don't have the resources to actually fix stuff. There's value in empowering people to repair their own devices. And that's not just some abstract consumer empowerment slogan. There are real consequences in our throwaway society around consumption, e-waste and sustainability. So there's a big issues that stem from this that are, are unseen, that are implicit, that aren't, you know, often what we think about when we throw our device away. The impacts, the ripple effects are huge. Michael Stead is a lecturer in sustainable design futures at Imagination, Lancaster University's design research lab. He's explored how communities and individuals can participate in creating a more sustainable future for the products we use. And that can involve localized initiatives like repair cafes. And while there aren't many of these in Canada, these ad hoc local cafes, as well as so-called restart parties, have cropped up around Europe and beyond. Often people come with products and devices that have broken, they no longer work in some way, and these these spaces are, are places to try and fix them, and often they're, they're run on volunteer time. Volunteers who have expertise in repair, recycling, reuse, and they, they tend to try and um, get them going again, and they, they often take the person who owns the device, the product, through that repair process. As well as fixing the device, they also are about education and improving people's skills skills and understanding of the need to repair and um, keep their products going for longer. In July 2021, the UK implemented its own right to repair legislation. So it's a, a legislation that aims to empower consumers to better repair and keep their devices going for longer. However, in its current form, it tends to focus on um, traditional white goods, the big kind of domestic goods that we've had for decades. Washing machines, dishwashers, tumble dryers, more mechanical in their kind of design and operation. And it fails to encompass products that have digital elements, things like smart devices, so mobile phones, wearable devices, smart speakers, things that we are now beginning to see in many households. And um, so it kind of falls short of catering for the repair of those devices in terms of giving consumers the option to go and find services that repair those particularly software repair and uh, upgrades, which is a huge market these days. And there's lots of these things becoming redundant. Michael recently led a project aimed at addressing those limitations in the UK's right to repair law, specifically that it doesn't account for the right to repair Internet of Things devices. 
The Repair Shop 2049 project was a pilot project where we've been working with a local makerspace. So a makerspace tends to be a place in, uh, say, a town or community where people can have access to digital technologies, things like 3D printers, um, coding. They can get that knowledge and understanding of how to code things and uh, laser cutting, all these, these kind of new technologies that are coming through. And they're often very socially and environmentally orientated. Their ethos is about, you know, helping the community to be more sustainable. So we've been working with a local makerspace called The Making Rooms in Blackburn, UK. And we've been thinking about how we can improve repair in the local community. So we've been doing workshops with the local council, makers, repairers, the general public. We've been getting local tech companies to come in who develop products as well. And uh, we've been doing these kind of roundtable discussions, thinking about the future and how we can design not just the devices, but also the system, the support system around these things that can support repair and uh, upscale it in a local capacity. And so why is it so important to build these, these sorts of local repair networks in communities like that? So what we've tried to do with these projects is understand how a new model, a new social business model, so uh, you know it's got economic implications, but it's also got using social capital to support repair. And so it kind of combines this idea of you know repair cafe, maker space, but also local services to create jobs and infrastructure locally. Because you know the big players, there's the, there are big international companies, and once they design devices and distribute them and consumers buy them in other parts of the world. People are left to sort of deal with the implications of the device in terms of how, how sustainable it is and how, how to keep it going, you know, improve its life cycle. So we, we see this idea of building capacity for repair and sustainability in the local communities as a way to, to sort of counter the unsustainability of these smart products, Internet Things products. Yeah. But from what you've observed, what are some of the challenges of, of teaching people to repair their, their smart technologies in particular? There's quite a few. And um, the big ones are this, they are complex products, you know, the hardware, the software, these are things that, you know, we need to develop the skills and expertise to to deal with a lot of that repair knowledge and the ability to use technologies and tools and the skills have kind of been lost because we are so used to just buying a product and we replace it rather than repair it. We see that across the world where, you know, it's, it's replacement rather than repair or reuse. Um, so we've kind of lost that. So as part of these projects, we're developing a um, educational toolkit, which gives people kind of a um, corpus of skills and there's problem solving. There's practical skills like soldering, 3D modeling, 3D printing. So you can 3D model and print a new physical part and also coding. So it's kind of trying to be a holistic educational package for people to do that in a local capacity, but also give them then ideas and the routes and avenues to say, if they can't do it themselves, go to you know these particular local services that are available to you as well. So it's about um, empowerment and education, but also giving them an access to better repair for their devices. Yeah. And beyond the immediate sort of local impact of empowering communities to fix their things, what do you hope these networks can achieve at a kind of a broader societal level? 
Yeah, I mean that's that's the big the big one, and you know, as researchers, we, we we're always hoping that you know the work that we do can be transferable or is reproducible and extendable across different communities. You know, we, we're very focused on a local level at the moment because we can see there's potential to do what we're doing there. But the example of this toolkit, it's not a commercial enterprise that we're doing. It's something that we can potentially make open source, put the plans and the list of components and all the education material that goes with it online uh, so that people can access it from all over the world and because we're dealing with a makerspace that has is part of the fab lab the fabrication network which is a global network of makerspaces there's potential there to distribute that through them there's these makerspaces in lots of towns and cities all over the world so it begins to have a potential ripple effect yeah from what I understand, there have been efforts to actually ban things like planned obsolescence as a practice. For instance, I believe there's a ban in, in France on that. Is that the kind of measure that you would like to see embraced on a wider scale? In France, they seem to be quite progressive in terms of the way they're doing things. They've got a, a repair index that I know that certain organizations and initiatives, uh, the Restart Project, have been trying to bring into the UK. But I mean, yeah, if that would be an amazing outcome to stop companies from actually designing in obsolescence into their devices you know companies even governments say that that would stop innovation and you know cause issues with companies and like jobs and things like that but we're obviously in a climate emergency and e-waste and obsolescence is driving that as well part of that issue so if if we can begin to reduce the problems of e-waste and pollution that that creates then uh, through banning things like obsolescence that would be be an interesting um you know possibility of of, of helping that that issue yeah i understand you're an advocate for using imagination and, and specifically speculative design in the creation of sustainable and repairable iot devices could you talk to me a bit about what that looks like in practice maybe give me some examples they are a way to think about alternatives and different futures across different kinds of contexts. But I've been using it for thinking about sustainability and particularly around devices, products and services that we use. I've done several projects that use that kind of method. So one's toaster for life. This idea of a toaster that we could keep throughout your life cycle. And a way to do that would be to make it more repairable, make it customizable, make it upgradable. There's also an aspect of this digital pattern passports and, and making the parts and the materials trackable so you'd know where those parts go to as well and it's a way to get people to start thinking about alternative futures and change their mindsets yeah in your work on sustainable internet of things you explore this concept of spimes which was a term coined by the futurist and science fiction author bruce sterling back in 2004 could you explain what that is and and what ideas it offers us for the future Bruce Sterling wrote a book called Shaping Things. I think it was 2005 he released it. I think it kind of was a precursor to the Internet of Things, to the smart devices that started to come through in the early 2000s, you know, connected devices. There'd always been this kind of idea of the smart fridge and that would be able to tell you things about the food and groceries that you put into your fridge and how long it could last for. And I think Sterling kind of started to play on that and think about, you know, there are these issues with sustainability. How could we make 
products and connected devices. So he started to conceptualize this idea of IoT devices that we could track throughout space and time. So SPIMES is a contraction of the word space and time. It was very much influenced by Amazon packages. You know, we know where we can track our deliveries through GPS. So it was combining all different technologies. So GPS, RFID, smart cards that can open doors and things so we could track them throughout space and time. And was the idea to make it more sustainable by doing these things? It was, yeah. So that's what I explored through my PhD. And then through things like the Toaster to Life, they've been a way to explore those kind of ideas. There are trade-offs. So through the research that we've done, we've developed these you know, visions of the future for products to try and make them more sustainable. We've talked to people and um, they do offer alternative futures. In some way, they are uh, more sustainable, but they're often trade-offs. So what we found with the digital infrastructure that would underpin these things also has a, an environmental impact. So the data-driven systems that are supporting, say, digital passports or the sensors you're generating data about the product um, throughout its life cycle, that also has an environmental impact as well because we need energy and water to cool the systems. Cloud services, things like that, are also drawing on resources. So there are those trade-offs and it's, it's kind of whether could we design products to all be like that but what would their impact be in terms of the data driven carbon emissions and the impacts there so these are complex issues these are ecosystems we've often focused on the material embodied energy and the embodied impacts in products because we think about extracting the raw materials the manufacturing they have huge impacts we then get to the end of life and we're not reusing those materials and the values lost but also with digitalization hooking things up to the internet that is also having a cost so the spimes has positives and it also has negatives as, as a vision but it's still a really interesting potential future that we could go mm -hmm. to yeah and so just finally where do you see the movement for the right to repair and more sustainable smart devices in the years to come I think it's about awareness and education, uh, making people more aware of the impacts they are having when they throw things away. The, the, the key thing is to always think about the trade-offs and the uh, potential ripple effects that what we see as positive changes potentially could have as well, because we often think in the short term and, you know, companies tend to, they're thinking about, you know, we, we've got a product, we want to sell it. We want to uh, monetize it, even if they've tried to build in sustainable parameters. But you've got to think about the more like long-term effects of, of putting that to market and the ecosystem that that device or range of devices then sits within because they're going to impact in a range of ways that often once you've designed the device, released it, you, you don't think about it and it's out in the world, and but it's having an environmental impact. So it's, it's quite a, um, you know, a complex, wicked problem at the end of the day. Yeah. Yeah. Michael, thanks so much for your insights on this. No problem, Nora. Thank you very much for having me. Michael Stead is a lecturer in Sustainable Design Futures at Imagination, Lancaster University's Design Research Lab. You've been listening to Spark. The show was made by Michelle Parisi, Samarie Johannes, Megan Carty, and me, Nora Young. And by Natasha Tuzikov, Anthony Rossborough, and Michael Stead. And from the Spark archives, Matt Reimer and Kyle Weens. Subscribe to Spark on the free CBC Listen app or your favorite podcast app. I'm Nora Young. Talk to you soon.
For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.